0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Romans chapter 7 this morning. Romans chapter 7, we're going to continue our uh, walk through the book of Romans this morning, the letter that Paul has written to the Romans. Romans chapter 7, we'll be beginning in just a moment in verse uh, 7. You may or may not know it as you look at me this morning, uh, but there are two of me. I know, you're looking and you only see one, or maybe some of you do see two. For that, I recommend a good ophthalmologist. But there are two of me. I don't have a twin. I haven't cloned myself, but there are definitely two of me. And I'm guessing there's probably two of you as well. Here's what I mean. There is the me that I want to be, and there is the me that often I find myself to be. The me I want to be has a nice, clean, and organized desk (laughs) where everything is in order and people come in and they see a nice, cleaned-off desk and I know where everything is. The me I actually am has piles of papers sitting on my desk and hopefully I can find what I need when I need it. The me I want to be has a pristine, uber-clean car that doesn't even look like anybody drives it. The me I actually, thanks, buddy, there we go, maybe I can do it, John, thanks, buddy. The me I actually am um, doesn't even like to look in the back seat, the me I actually am uh, has a cup holder where the cup kind of sticks in the cup holder when it pulls out, and uh, the me I actually am knows that if I ever got uh, broken down on the side of the road, there's probably enough French fries and Cheerios in between the seats to keep me going for a while. The me I want to be always remembers birthdays and special occasions always has a meaningful thoughtful gift in the mail on time even early to the person the me I actually am sometimes sends out a belated card with a gift card in it to a place that I hope they don't hate The me I want to be is up to date on current events, knows what's going on in our world and in our culture, not only just current events on the news, but reads thoughtful commentary and and editorials and things like that to stay up on it and has thought them through from a biblical worldview and formed an opinion on them. The me I actually am has stacks of unread periodicals and magazines on my nightstand and in my bathroom, and on my desk, and in my office bathroom, and every place else, there's a gap between the me I want to be and the me that I actually am. So there are two me's, but I'm guessing there are also two you's at times. There's this tension that exists in our lives. The tension is between the good intentions that we have and the life that we often actually live. We make these promises. We make these resolutions. We're going to start this. We're going to stop that. We have good intentions, but often it doesn't result in the life we actually live. We consistently work on these things, and yet there is this gap. The gap between good intentions and our actions. It exists in my life. I'm guessing it also exists in your life. Not only is this tension uh, we experience in various situations and in relationships, when our best intentions fall short of our actions, the same dynamic also exists in our relationship with God. That we have good intentions but our good intentions don't always translate into actions. If you've been with us for uh, a number of weeks as we walk through the book of Romans, Paul brings up this tension in this morning's passage. He not only brings up the fact that this gap exists, but he tells us what we are supposed to do about it. So I want to read for you a passage this morning, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, going through verse 25. As I read it this morning, this letter, these words of Paul to the church at Rome, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what I want you to listen for. Listen for this tension. Listen for the gap that exists between Paul's intentions, what he wants to do, and his actions, what he ends up doing. Here's what the Word of God says, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to cover, covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree the law, that the law is good. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You may not have understood everything that I just read in that passage. To be fair, there are scholars and theologians who have read this passage for hundreds and even thousands of years and argued over different aspects of what exactly it means to be dead to the law or dead to sin and alive to to the life in Christ. There's people who have argued for centuries about what that means. And you may not have understood everything, but I know you understood something Because you understood the same thing that I understood, that this struggle exists and you and I can listen to Paul's words and say, yeah, that's me. The good that I want to do, I don't always do it. The things that I don't want to do, I sometimes find myself doing them. And yet I've given my life to Christ. And yet I'm a follower of God. So what is it that is going on in this situation. Paul tells us two things about the law that are important. One thing is this. One, the law reveals our inability to do right. The law, Paul says, actually reveals sin. We may not see that, but the law, the standards of God, actually reveal sin. Paul says that in verse 7, Yet, uh, if it had not been for the law, I would not even known sin. I would not even know what it is. And then he chooses for his example the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And it's an interesting example that he picks. Specifically the command to not covet says you should not covet anything that your neighbor has. Most everyone that Paul was writing to, and I'm guessing most everyone here this morning, would say that at some point you've probably coveted something your neighbor has. Paul picks an example that all of us can relate to. What's it look like? Your iPhone 4. The storage is almost full on it. You've had it for years. Your parents won't buy you a new one. It's lagging not all the apps work. And the new apps, you can't even download because they won't work on your operating system. You, you look at it, and, and, and you want a new one, but you can't get one. But your friend always has the newest iPhone. And the iPhone 6S looks so sleek and so fast, And you want that one, and you know that when the iPhone 7 comes out, they're going to have that the day it comes out. And yet, Paul says, there's this command that says, don't covet. See, what Paul is illustrating is the reality is that we would not even know that it's wrong, but for the fact that the command was given, thou shalt not covet. Can you put that gap up there, John? My remote's not working. The gap between God's law and our actions. Um, we would not even know, Paul says, you wouldn't even know it's sin. If the law tells you it. You pull into your driveway after a hard day's work, and you look over, and your neighbor's just washing up. He's just cleaning all the dirt off his hands from putting some beautiful new flowers in his nicely manicured lawn. And all the flower beds look perfect, and the grass is a perfect height, and it's all green. And then you look across to your other window at your field of weeds, and there's something within you that says, I want his lawn. And we think, well, that's natural. There's nothing wrong with it. And that's exactly Paul's point, that if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't even know it was sin. I wouldn't even know there was anything wrong with it. But the law comes along and says, if you do that, it's wrong. God comes along and says, when you are not satisfied with what I have given you, when you have an unhealthy desire for what I have given someone else, when you are not content with the life and the things that I have called you to, that that's wrong. And Paul says, I wouldn't have even known it's wrong if it wasn't for the law. So the law reveals sin. It's noteworthy that he chooses coveting because it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's really an internal sin. It's the only one that only you know and God knows whether you are committing it. Yet Paul chooses coveting. The one commandment that could be secretly indulged without any human consequence Yet it is perhaps the one commandment that all people who he is writing to in a moment of honesty would have to admit they are guilty of committing. Even the most religious people can be guilty of coveting someone else's religiosity. And so Paul says, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't even know if that was sin. The reason the gap exists in our lives between God's law and my actions is because God's. when I understand God's law, I look at it and I say, yep, if that's the standard, I missed it. There's a gap that exists between God's law and my actions. So the law reveals sin, but there's a second thing the law does, and you might not realize this, but Paul says it. He says the law actually agitates sin, provokes sin, And he says it like this, he said, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law said not to you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So the law being present actually provokes sin in our lives. And you say, well, what does that look like? St. Augustine, who lived in the fourth century, uh, wrote an autobiography uh, called the Confessions, talking about his conversion. I recommend it to you if you're looking for some, a uh, healthy but heady, uh, early fourth century reading. But let me give you a small uh, piece of his life. Augustine says there was a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its color or its flavor. Late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets until then, as our bad habit was, a group of young scoundrels, and I among them, went to shake and rob this tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart which thou didst pity, even in the bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to thee what it was I was seeking there when I was being gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil, but evil itself. And this is what Augustine writes. I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought, but stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and doing what was wrong. The law can't even provoke sin. We don't have, I'm not gonna put a sign outside of our church building that says, please don't throw rocks through our windows. Because you know what would happen? We've never had a rock thrown through our window here at Mount Hope, to my knowledge. But if I put that sign up, I guarantee you that at some point, someone is going to walk by when no one else is around and think, huh, must be fun to throw rocks through church windows, find a good rock and lob it at the church. See, there are some things you wouldn't even know about if you were not told about them or even warned about them. If you're a parent in here, you know what I'm talking about. Because at some point in your parenting, you had to make a decision or you will have to make a decision and that decision is this. When do you have the talk? You know the talk I'm talking about. When do you talk to your children about anatomy and biology and reproduction and all of that and sexuality and everything? When do you have the talk? And there may be various reasons why you thought, well, now is better than then or, or later is better than now. But here's where, here's where your decision, here's part of your decision making. It was this. You were afraid that if I introduce something now that they're not even thinking about, that I'm going to put ideas in their head that they don't even know about. And that's what Paul's saying. If it's not for the law, sometimes we don't even know it's sin. And so here's where the thinking sometimes goes in our life. We hear about something and we say, people do that? And then we say, why would anyone want to do that? And then, well, there must be a reason that people do that. Maybe it's actually enjoyable to do that. Why can't I do that? I'm going to do that. I did that. And you didn't even know about it if it weren't for the law that warns us against it. So Paul says it's what happens. Now let us be clear. The purpose of the law is not to agitate and provoke sin. It's a byproduct that happens from it and from the standards of God. Like nuclear power, there's nothing inherently wrong with plutonium or the energy we get and use to turn our lights on from it, but there is a hazardous byproduct that comes about from it. Paul is simply saying the same thing. There is nothing wrong with the law. There is nothing wrong uh, with the law itself, but our sin nature brings about a hazardous byproduct from the good law and our good intentions, so the law not only reveals sin; it not only agitates; it, it also agitates sin. But what do we do about this gap? So, what do we do about this gap between God's law and my actions? What do we do about the gap? Well, there are four responses that I'm going to give you quickly this morning of what we can do about the gap that exists. Four things. Two of them are what many in the culture do today. One of them is what Paul is saying he tried to do and many of us as Christians try to do, and the fourth one is what Paul says is the right way to handle this gap between our good between God's law and our actions. So the first two are the way our culture often tries to handle the gap, and the first one is this, one just throw out the law. Just get rid of the law because if we can't live up to it, and if I can't do it, and if you can't do it, and thousands of years of human history have showed no one can do it, well, let's just give up and quit. Let's get rid of the law. We don't like the law. We can't do the law, so let's quit the games, and let's quit trying. The gap is such an issue that many people make an effort to throw it out, Or what they really do is they throw out God's law and they just replace it with their own law. Ones that they think are easier to keep. So do not murder can stay because most of us can try and keep that. Uh, But, you know, do not think angry thoughts or be bitter or unforgiveness has to go. Covening is out because that's too hard to keep. Of course, what happens is we simply end up shaping the law in our own image. Throwing it out's not the answer. It's not the answer because God doesn't allow for it. In the end, the standard that God uses is his own laws, not the ones that 51% of the people agree on, not the one that your particular government at your particular time and your particular location agrees on. In the end, God uses his standards and his laws. So throwing them out is not really an answer. God didn't give us the ability to make the standards and laws, so why would he give us the ability to throw them out? So that's not the answer. But the second response, one, some people throw it out. The second thing is other people will try and trivialize it. Trivialize the law. To trivialize the law is to admit that, yes, it's there, but it's not important or relevant to us today. And there are many people that try and live their lives this way. Some people want to say, well, it's not important. Forget about your actions. Nobody's perfect anyway. All God really cares about are your good intentions. So God's law is reduced to the level of a hallmark card. Basically saying, sorry, I didn't get you the gift or do anything that you wanted or would have been helpful. But I got this card and I thought of you. And we reduce our lives living for God to that way. There are many people, even those who would call themselves Christian in our world, who take this approach. God doesn't really care about how you live. He just cares about how you think and what your intentions are. You don't have to read the Bible and follow what it says because you will just know the right thing to do. Do what feels good to you at the time. God will be okay with that he understands. Of course, intuitively, we know that it's not just our intentions that matter. We know it when someone promises to do something for us, intends to do it and don't do it, and we realize intentions are not enough. You know it as a parent, when you go to your child and they're on their iPad and you say, well, why didn't you do what I asked you to do? And the answer is, oh yeah, I meant to, but I got distracted. In that moment, your response is never, oh, well, if you meant to, that's, that's cool, as long as you meant to. Intentions matter, but so do actions. Hemingway said it this way, what is moral is what you feel good after. What is immoral is what you feel bad after. That may sound strange in a church, but it sounds perfectly appropriate to much in our culture, in our society, and in our world. We trivialize the law of God. We don't think it's that important. Others will trivialize it by saying it's not relevant to our day and time. At most, they were words given to a nation of people in a particular situation thousands of years ago. It's no more relevant to our lives than the Code of Hammurabi, the Codes of Ancient Greece, or even the Mayflower Compact. Great for people back then, but they have nothing to do with me now. They are not relevant to living in 21st century America. The problem with trivializing the law of God is that God didn't put an expiration date on his law true yes there was a ceremonial law that was for a very specific time for a very specific people that is not in place today that was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the sacrificial law sacrifices no longer need to be made it was once and for all in Jesus Christ that law has been fulfilled but the moral law still in place and if you're a follower of Jesus trying to live a life for God then you have to figure out what to do with the gap because there's a gap between God's law and your actions. And you can't throw it out and you can't trivialize it. So there's a third thing that people try and do. Paul tried this and my guess is that many sitting here today try this too. And that's try harder. Well, We can't throw it out and we can't trivialize it. So what we need to do is just try harder harder. This is the I'll do better next time mentality. Some people think the problem is not the law or my sin nature. The problem is my effort. I just didn't try hard enough and I will try harder and get it right next time. Many of us gravitate to this one because it gives us a feeling of control. We're like kids diving into a pool, and we look at our Heavenly Father and say, Wait, 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 don't don't go anywhere. I'll get it right next time. My next dive will be a 10. My next day will be a 10. I'll get it all right next time. I'll just try harder. Here's how the thinking goes we know what is right, we want to do what is right. So when we fail to do everything that is right, it must be because we didn't try hard enough. This is very much ingrained in our American mentality. I can do anything I set my mind to. I can be anything I want to be. The only thing separating you from you and the you you want to be is effort. Just give a little more grit. Just try harder. Just put in the hours, the effort, will get it done. It's ingrained in our American mentality. So... To counteract that, let me go back to one of the most famous Americans there is. Benjamin Franklin wrote this. He said, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live, out committing, live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclinations, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew or thought I knew what was right or wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. Franklin writes I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our, that it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping. What Franklin is saying is always saying is what Paul said 2,000 years before him, and that was. You can't do it. You can't try hard enough to fill this gap. You and I cannot bridge the gap of God's law and our actions by trying harder. The problem is because golf is, because life is more like golf than bowling. Life is more like golf than bowling. You know the problem with bowling? Well, there may be many problems with bowling, but one problem with bowling. You know why bowling doesn't get the crowds that baseball gets or football gets or even golf gets? You know why bowling doesn't get those crowds? Because bowling has a ceiling. Bowling has a ceiling and that ceiling is 300. 300. 300 is the best anyone is ever going to do. No one has ever left a bowling alley bowling a 301. There's a ceiling to it. There's as good as it can get. Bowling has a ceiling. Golf is different. If you golf, there's a different. Golf has par, sure. But you're really good golfers, your great golfers are always going to be below par. And if you're a really great golfer, you might go out today and shoot a 65, but someone goes out tomorrow and shoots a 64. There's no perfect game of golf. It doesn't exist. No one turned in a scorecard with just 18 strokes on it. There is no perfect game of golf. And life is more like golf than bowling. And that's why this gap exists, because you will never pitch a perfect day. It doesn't work that way. That's what Paul's saying, that's what God's word is saying. This is why Paul says that he finds himself doing those things he does not want to do and not doing the things he wants to do. Not because his intentions are bad, not because the law is bad, but because he has this sin nature in him that taints all that he does. There is no perfect game. It doesn't mean that everything is completely bad, but it does mean that nothing is completely good. Everything is tainted by the sin that lives within us. So we can't throw it out, can't trivialize it, and you can't just try harder. So what's the answer? It's not throwing it out, it's not trivializing it, it's not try harder, it's trust Christ. The end of this passage in verse 25, verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever felt that way in this struggle? Have you ever felt like I've been struggling against this so long. I've been trying to gain victory and I can't get it. I can't get victory. It won't let go. As hard as I try, it's never gone. I'm never the person I want to be. And you, like Paul, say, wretched man, wretched woman am I. Who's going to rescue me from this? And Paul says, don't try harder. Don't throw it out. Don't trivialize it. Trust Christ because his next line says thanks be to God through Jesus. Christ our Lord. The answer is that Jesus came, lived that perfect life, and offers his righteousness for your and my filthy rags of sin. And this is the answer to the gap between God's law and my actions. It'll never be filled by what I can do. It'll only be filled by what Christ has done. So don't come to this passage in chapter 7 and hear what it's not saying. Because I think many people come to this passage and they see this struggle and they say, oh, what hope is there? Or I just need to try harder just like Paul did. That is not this passage. Do not stop at verse 24. Charles Finney, great preacher of the 19th century and evangelist, said about this passage this, I am fully convinced that interpreting verses 14 to 24 as a Christian experience has done incalculable evil and has led thousands of souls there to rest and go no further, imagining that they are already as deeply versed in Christian experience as Paul was when he wrote that epistle, and they have stayed and hugged their delusion till they have found themselves in the depths of hell. What Finney is saying is trying harder isn't the answer. Quitting the struggle isn't the answer. Throwing out the law isn't the answer. The answer is verse 25 thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the answer and bridges the gap. And so the power to live the life that God has called you to live is actually not found in chapter 7. We'll get to it in chapter 8. Many of you, when we started this book a couple months ago, have been waiting to get to chapter 8. And you should feel that way. Because Paul, for seven chapters, lets us know how bad we are, lets us know how our attempts fail, lets us know how much we need Jesus. And finally, in kind of this climax, he says we're wretched. And what hope is there for us? And thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is hope. And next week as we get into chapter 8, we'll talk even more about that hope that God offers to us. So if you're here this morning, and you feel this gap in your life, and we all do, all I'm asking you is what do you fill it with? Have you tried to just throw it out and say, I quit, I can't do it? Have you bought into the argument that trivializes it and said, well, it's not that important or it's not relevant to me? Have you just said, well, I'll try harder tomorrow? None of those are going to fill the gap. I would encourage you this morning to trust Christ, to allow him to give you the strength to live and be the person, the life that he wants you to be, but also to receive the grace when you don't and when you and I inevitably fall short. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your love. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those people that you have called us to be. Lord, help us to stop trying harder. Help us, Lord, to respect and understand The law that you've gave to us is good. But Lord, it ultimately is given to us to point us to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.